share with you, with you the problem of preaching on the Sermon on the Mount. Firstly, no matter who you are, you can never do it justice. Secondly, each section of the Sermon on the Mount actually opens up a whole range of discussions. If you ever want to have a discussion group going properly, take them to the Sermon on the Mount because it just opens up so many matters to discuss. And thirdly, even though you, each passage opens up all these other things to discuss, if you don't read the whole sermon as a whole, you get lost and miss the point of what the sermon is about and what Jesus is saying. So as we travel through Matthew's Gospel this year, we've come to the Sermon on the Mount and we'll kind of slow down, but we need to keep the big picture in mind as well. The sermon starts with what we call the Beatitudes, the Latin word for the blessings. And now there's, there's so much to say about the Beatitudes that actually I did a series of Bible studies just on this called the Good Living Guide, produced by the Matthias Media, which takes you through these one at a time, looking up what they're about, because there is so much to be said just on the Beatitudes alone, and it's worth doing. I'm going to do all the Beatitudes today in one hit, because you need to see the whole of the Beatitudes as well as seeing each one. We could have slowed down, but we're not going to. In our bookshop over here, you can get copies of that uh, series of Bible studies, if you like, as well as many other good things. But let's start remembering Jesus' message. For back in chapter 4, verse 17, chapter 4, verse 17, from that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, the kingdom of heaven is a key concept in the gospel. It's the same as the kingdom of God in Matthew and he calls it the kingdom of heaven. Mark and Luke, it's called the kingdom of God, but it's exactly the same. It's the reign, it's the rule of God. The people of Israel in the old covenant were the kingdom of God, but their sin excluded them from God's kingdom. First John the Baptist, then Jesus proclaimed a different kind of kingdom, not a geographical area with a king ruling over a constitutional monarchy, but rather a spiritual kingdom, a kingdom that is the true kingdom of God, where God reigns over his people. And in particular, they proclaimed that the kingdom is near, or as we have it in the ESV, is at hand. Jesus' announcement was about the timing of the kingdom, the proximity of the kingdom. The reign of God was just about to commence, was just about to be constituted. The new kingdom was coming the long-awaited time when God would once more rule his people. And the way to prepare for the coming of the kingdom was repent. Change your mind and change the direction that you're going in and living in. Turn your back on the rebellion against God which you have lived in for all these years. Turn your back away from that and now accept God as your king, submitting to him and seeking forgiveness for your past rebellion. It's a matter of saying no to the way I've lived, to change my mind and change the way of life and to say yes to this new kingdom. The people of Israel had been living in disobedience for centuries and therefore under the judgment of God. But now with the coming of the kingdom, it's time to put things right. It's time to be prepared to meet God. It's time to repent. The message of Christianity has never really changed from this proclamation, this proclamation of the coming of the kingdom of God, with the necessary call for people to respond appropriately 
by repentance. And this message of the kingdom of heaven and repentance is the reason for Christian ambivalence two-mindedness about the world. Genuine Christianity is both world-affirming and world-denying at the same time. And this ambivalence towards the world is still felt by Christians now. We affirm the world because it's God's world, created by him and declared by him to be good, very good. The rain, the sunshine, the grass, the flowers, the moons, the mountains, the seas, they're all created by God for our good. I don't know about you, but yesterday, being the Easter long weekend, the Easter Monday, I had a wander out. It was beautiful weather today, yesterday, wasn't it? Autumn came today, but yesterday was the last of summer, and it was beautiful. And as I walked in amongst some parks, there were hundreds of people with family groups, playing and rejoicing and enjoying their children and kids on bikes and scooters and people throwing balls back and forward and people talking and it was just a beautiful place, a beautiful world, a beautiful day and it was God's good earth that we can see and even in its sinfulness God still loves his world for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son if you remember And we must never lose sight of God's love for the individual sinner. He doesn't desire the death of a sinner, but rather that he would turn from his wickedness and live. This is God's good earth, and everything in it is to be received with thanksgiving. Now, while God's good people affirm his world, we also, of course, deny the world. For denial is built into that very idea of repenting. It's rejecting life as we've known it. God himself has reserved this world for judgment and the destruction by fire and the dissolution of everything. And we Christians are warned not to love the world or the flesh or the devil. James calls love with this world adultery. And 1 John warns against the love of this world. For we are the people who have denied ourselves, taken up our cross to follow Jesus, turned from this world to live differently as the citizens, not of Australia nor of this world, but the citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And it's this kingdom lifestyle that Jesus spells out for his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount the lifestyle that stands in opposition to the world's lifestyle, the lifestyle that calls upon us to repent of this world. Now, one of the immediate problems is the worldly success of Jesus' mission. For we saw at the end of chapter 4 how huge crowds had come to follow him. And the disciples, who had left their fishing nets and their father in the boat to come follow him, the disciples needed to understand that popularity is not part of the kingdom of heaven. That popularity wasn't the mission that they were called to. For seeing the crowds, Jesus, we see in chapter 5, verse 1, went up onto the mountain, called his disciples, he sat down and he taught them what we call the Beatitudes. Now let me start with this word Beatitudes. Why do we keep it in Latin and why do we translate it blessings? And we don't know what to do with this word really. It's so religious. What does it mean, blessings? 
It's about the good life. But what does that mean? Some modern translations have it as happy. But happy is the atheist's view of the good life, and so not really appropriate. In a sense, it's the Australian word lucky. You're a lucky person. Because we Christians don't believe in luck, so we can't translate it that way either. A slightly more sophisticated person, maybe living on the other side of the harbour, would say, how fortunate. But of course, we Christians don't believe in fortune either, so we can't translate it that way. It really is, this is the life to be envied. But envy is a sin, so we can't translate it that way either. So we translate it blessed. We don't know what it means, but it's accurate. And that's where we leave it each time and need it explained. It's the good life of the kingdom. Now, it's not eight blessings, for those in the kingdom will enjoy all these blessings. And those in the kingdom will be these kinds of people, showing all these characteristics. Verses 3 to 10 have eight blessings that are not separate not different people who will be blessed. You know, some are poor in the spirit and they'll receive that blessing and others are are, are pure in heart and they'll receive that blessing. No, no, every person will be poor in spirit. Every person will be pure in heart and each will receive all these blessings. Notice how in verse 3 and verse 10, the blessing is the same. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. This is the beginning and ending of the blessings. I know there's another one coming on after that, verse 11, but verses 2 to 10, sorry, verses 3 to 10 contain the eight blessings that are different to the one in verses 11 and 12. In a moment, I'll share it to you. That is, verses verses 4 to 9 are all about the future. They will be comforted. They will inherit the uh, the land. They will see God. But verses 3 and verse 10 are about the present. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And so it starts off and finishes off with theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And in the middle of it, there are the things that are going to come in the future. For the blessings are for the kingdom now and for the future as well. Jesus is preaching that the kingdom is near at hand. For those who long for it will receive it and will enjoy the blessings in the future. Those who are the true people of God, the the poor in spirit, the mourning, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, they will share in the kingdom to come and all the blessings of the future that it brings. For they are even now to be citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And these blessings of the old, are blessings of the Old Testament. For the Old Testament promised the coming of the kingdom and with its coming, all the blessings that Jesus mentions here, which is part of the reason why this booklet of study is produced as it shows you the Old Testament background to each of these blessings separately. And what God promised to his people is now to be given to them. They had been denied them because of their sinfulness. But now the kingdom of heaven was coming and they will receive them. Mind you, not all Israelites are going to receive them. Only those who repent, who have given up their old ways in order to live in the kingdom of heaven. 
for centuries. The faithful within Israel had waited for it. Now it had come with all its blessings to those who genuinely waited, as the Old Testament had taught them to be waiting, the merciful, the meek, those who mourned, those who were pure in heart, those who were the peacemakers. And these blessings both affirm the world and deny the world. See, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Just take that as an example. I will pick on two examples, but that one will do to start with, verse 5. Verse 5 is actually word for word from Psalm 37, verse 11. Meekness is despised in and by the world. In fact, it's so despised that it's usually confused with weakness. The word weak means without strength, whereas the word meek means without using your strength. Uh, If I were to climb into a ring with Mike Tyson, I would be demonstrated to be weak. If I was to climb in the ring with my three-year-old grandson, I would demonstrate that I'm meek. I wouldn't be flattening him, you'll be glad to know, I'd be allowing him to flatten me, not because I am weaker than him, but because of meekness. Whereas with Tyson, I'd be running as fast as I could around the ring. So to uphold meekness is the opposite of being assertive, self-made man, conquering, overcoming, beating, defeating. But what's the blessing of the meek? Well, they shall inherit the world, which is world-affirming if you think about it. For if the world was all evil and what you are promised is that you would inherit the world, then the blessing wouldn't be a blessing, it would be a curse. It would be a dreadful thing to inherit the earth if the earth was evil. The earth is not evil, it's good. That's why it's a blessing to inherit it. It's not blessed of the meek, for they know how to live without anything. It's blessed are the meek, for they will be given everything. There was a famous piece of graffiti in a tube station in London which had blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth, if that's all right with the rest of you. That kind of sense, though, of God's giving to us, not us taking what we deserve, want, own, envy, the meek will inherit. Take another one, verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. This comes from Isaiah 61, and the people mourning over the Babylonian conquest. It's kind of like Psalm 137, when they said, Sing us the songs of Zion. By the waters of Babylon we laid up our harps. How can we sing songs of Zion when we're in captivity in Babylon? There is someone who is mourning. It's not blessed are the mourners, for it's better to be a mourner. It's better to be unhappy. Or blessed are the mourners, it's good when your relatives die. It's blessed are the mourners because you're going to be comforted. It affirms the world's view that comforting is better than mourning while denying the world's view for mourners are better than happy people. It's not happy who the world will think... Sorry, it's the happy that the world thinks are blessed. 
There's a happy person. What a fortunate man. Here's someone who's deeply grieving. How sad for him, how dreadful. Who would want to be him? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, we're told, don't go to a party because you learn no wisdom in a party. Go to the house of mourning for wisdom is found in the house of mourning. And you ponder, friends, in your own lifetime, watch it and you'll see there are party after party after party of which you will learn absolutely nothing about life. But every funeral makes you think. Every time you go to a funeral, you have to reconsider what life is about and its purpose and its meaning and what's going to happen to me and my wife and my children and my parents. It's the house of mourning where true wisdom is to be found not in the house of partying. That's the cackle of fools. So how can these both be world-affirming and world-denying? Well, because of the timing. Now in this sinful world, it is better to mourn and to be meek. Then in the kingdom of heaven, we will receive the blessings of our inheritance and our comfort And so, blessed are those who mourn and meek now, for theirs will be comfort and inheritance. And each of the Beatitudes works along that line. They will be world-affirming, as they should be, in due time when the kingdom of heaven comes and you receive it in its fullness. So the message of the kingdom of heaven is a message of repenting of the world's satisfactions It's a message of repenting of the world's establishment. It's a message of repenting of the world's worldliness. Because the kingdom of heaven, the blessings that we wrongly seek in the world, will be given. The kingdom of heaven, these blessings will be given to unworldly people. The pure, the meek, the hungry for righteousness, the poor in spirit, the persecuted. They are the unworldly people. But when the kingdom of heaven comes, they're the ones that will be given the blessings of the world. Whereas in this world, the worldly people seem to have the blessings, but in the long run, they don't actually have them at all. It's just the persecuted one in verse 10 that raises the whole point that Jesus has been driving at. For if you remember, he's teaching his disciples... And this is the one which is then repeated in verses 11 and 12 and applied particularly to the disciples. For this one is of particular importance to the disciples and so we're going to spend more time in verses 11 and 12 because verses 11 and 12 are the point of verses 3 to to 10. But before we go there, let me suggest to you that the tension we feel between world-denying and world-affirming leads to Christianity being either seduced or persecuted. For while it is world-denying, its advocates will be persecuted by the world, and while it is world-affirming, its advocates will be seduced by the world. As we Christians preach against the world, the world will persecute us. As we Christians preach for the world, the world will seduce us. Naturally, therefore, there's a tendency for Christians to give up on repentance because who wants to be persecuted? 
to give up on the world denials and start affirming this world and so live at peace with this world, accepting the destructive white anting of our faith in the process. For as we affirm the world and the world affirms us, we are being seduced and domesticated by the world. I came across a surprising confirmation of this. It's an essay written by a non-Christian philosopher, a great atheist humanist called John Dewey, not the Dewey Decimal Library man, but the other Dewey who was the founder of educational systems and uh, philosophy. And he wrote in these words, It seems to me that the chief danger to religion lies in the fact that it has become so respectable. It has become largely a sanction of what socially exists, a kind of gloss upon institutions and conventions. Primitive Christianity was devastating in its claims. It was a religion of renunciation and denunciation of the world. It demanded a change of heart that entailed a revolutionary change in human relationships. Since the Western world is now alleged to be Christianized, a world of outworn institutions is accepted and blessed. A religion that began as a demand for a revolutionary change and that has become a sanction to established economic, political and international institutions should perhaps lead its sincere devotees to reflect upon the sayings of the one worshipped as its founder. Woe unto you when all men shall speak well of you, and blessed are ye when men shall revile you and persecute you. Here he is, the atheist, the non-Christian, but he sees more clearly, I believe, than most Christians do today, how the church in becoming part of society, departs from her Lord. Whenever we affirm the world, the world will affirm us and we will find it harder and harder to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Here's one of the great problems of historic denominations. Establishment evangelism is almost by definition impossible. That's why Cathedral ministries are so difficult, frankly. See, we work so hard to be part of society that when society finally accepts us, well, we're no longer able to tell society to repent. Or worse, we are so much part of society that we're unable to see that we need to repent. Because of our position in society, we either willfully or unwittingly cannot denounce the system that so favours us. Any system that promotes me to the top of the system must by definition be a good one, mustn't it? How can I rise to the top of the system and then declare that it's evil? We think we will be heard because of our career or our traditions or our place or our success, but we are not heard because we have nothing to say. For we will not repent And so we cannot call upon others to repent without hypocrisy. It's no different to the rich young ruler who went away sorrowful for he had great wealth and Jesus said, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus has called the fishermen to give up their fishing nets and come with him to fish for men. 
to preach repentance for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But seeing the massive crowds of the end of chapter 4, he now has to warn them against imagining that fishing for men for the kingdom has anything to do with popularity. And that's the great theme of these next three chapters. But it's picked up particularly in the shift between verse 10 and verse 11 of chapter 5. The shift between the first eight Beatitudes and that ninth extra one in verses 11 and 12. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. What's different about that beatitude? Well, firstly, and obviously it's longer than the other ones. Secondly, it's on the same subject as the previous one. None of the others repeat themselves like that. And this picks up the last of the eight, the persecuted one, and explores just that one theme. But more importantly... It's the shift to the second person. For there's a shift from a third person, they, them, to the second person, you. See, verses 3 to 8, Jesus has been talking to the disciples about other people. They will have this, they will have that, they will, this will happen to them. But now he turns his guns right onto the disciples and talks to them about you. You will have this. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. This is what he's been leading up to. The kingdom's blessings of comfort and inheritance, righteousness and mercy, of seeing God and being called his sons. The kingdom's blessings come, but they come with persecution. Persecution for righteousness' sake, persecution for Jesus' sake, persecution that the disciples are going to have to endure. It lay ahead of them as surely as it lay ahead of him, as surely as it lay ahead of John the Baptist, and was the experience of all the prophets. For Jesus was preaching repentance, and all the prophets who preached repentance were persecuted. And so Jesus told his disciples to rejoice and be glad, for this is the good life. This is the life to be envied. This is the lucky life. This is the one that's fortunate. This is the one you should be pleased to have. For you cannot be a preacher of repentance and be popular and loved in this world. Persecution, rejection, opposition are inevitable to those who would preach repentance. But be assured, popularity is not the good life. Not in a fallen, sinful world, a world of sin and corruption. To be popular in such a world is a very bad mark. Furthermore, popularity is a terrible master, leading you to all manner of compromise and corruption yourself. Furthermore, it's a fool's paradise. To be led by the nose, by every fad and fashion, will only lead you into slavery and bondage. Remember the old saying, even the dead dog can swim with the current. You have to be alive to ever swim against the current. Swimming with the current is no sign of anything other than the fact 
that you're dead. Persecuted for righteousness. Persecuted, hated, defamed, reviled for Jesus' sake. This is the kingdom of heaven. This is the good life. This is the reason for joy and be gladness. But why rejoice? Are we masochists? No, not at all. Rejoice, says Jesus, because when you are persecuted on my account, you're undergoing the true prophet's persecution. Rejoice for your reward is great in heaven. Rejoice for you are in the best of company, the prophets of old. Verse 12, rejoice and be glad for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Persecution was normal for Jeremiah, Isaiah, Elijah, Moses. In their own day, they were all persecuted. Though interestingly, of course, when they're dead and buried, many years later, they're all honoured. People speak well of them later on. But think back to the lives of those prophets and in their lifetime, they were always unpopular. And so it has been ever since, my friends. Wesley, Whitfield, Bunyan, all unpopular in their time. Bunyan spent years in prison. Wesley and Whitfield were locked out of churches and had to preach in cemeteries outside the churches. You can think of the Reformation. Luther had to hide as a monk, as a knight in a, in a castle for three years while he taught himself Hebrew and translated most of the Bible into German, which is a very useful three years. But he was there hiding from the persecution that was coming his way. Jan Hus, he was burnt at the stake. Wycliffe, was, his body was uh, taken out and then chopped up and, and burnt and destroyed. Uh, you can think in the Anglicans with Latimer and Ridley and Cranmer, all burnt at the stake in Oxford. The more effectively you preach repentance, the more resistance and hostility you can expect. And even these people who at their time were hated, it's fascinating how later on they are loved. The Anglican Church, which persecuted John Bunyan for years, now has him listed as one of the saints in their saints' days. The hypocrisy knows no end. Some years ago, there were rumours of Sydney Anglicans requiring that our church schools should be Christian. You would expect a Buddhist school to be Buddhist. You'd expect a Muslim school to be Muslim. You'd expect a Jewish school to be Jewish. Would it be too much to expect an Anglican school to be Christian? Well, it brought great media consternation and not a little personal attack for our church schools are part of the establishment. Our church schools are there to teach the values of our society, not to challenge them. The society begrudgingly doesn't mind church schools provided they are domesticated into providing private education identical to non-Christian education just paid for by their parents. My friends who come here on a Tuesday, I want to be partners with you in evangelism. And I would like you to partner with me in fishing for men as the disciples of old were. I want us to invite the community of Sydney to hear the gospel, to hear the kingdom of God is near, to hear the great blessings of the coming of the kingdom, to hear how Jesus by his death and resurrection has brought the kingdom into effect. But that means I want you to invite Sydney to repent. Our temptation is to mute this message and then we'll be domesticated by society. Society's temptation will always be to persecute, revile, defame and ridicule such a preacher. 
But some people will accept our invitation to hear. They will understand the great news of the kingdom and under the spirit of God will repent, turn and live. And we must pray that there will be many such people in our city. But friends, we cannot preach it to others without preaching it to ourselves. We cannot have others world-denying while we are trying our best to be world-affirming. In this lifetime, we deny what we will affirm in the life to come. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for the Lord Jesus Christ and for the great challenge to live by the kingdom of heaven, even while we live in this sinful, fallen world. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that our repentance would be so true and so clear that people would see our good works and glorify you, our Heavenly Father, but that also we may rejoice with the prophets of old in the persecution that comes from the sinfulness of mankind. And we pray it in Jesus' name.